Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Between 1831 and 1832, French political scientist and historian Alexis de Tocqueville spent nine months in the United States trying to understand why democracy was flourishing here even as it struggled in France. He became enchanted with the concept of the separation of church and state, and especially with church. There's a passage attributed to him by Presidents Eisenhower, Reagan, and Clinton, allegedly from Democracy in America, but it turns out not to be de Tocqueville's after all. <laughs> in fact, even Snopes can't find its origin. But it's a great jumping off point for us this morning, so here you go. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In the fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power? America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. With a deep bow to all that was literally fatally flawed in that post-indigenous genocide, pre-Civil War perspective, I'm with Anonymous on goodness. In her book, Healing the Soul of America, spiritual teacher Marianne Williamson writes, America has always been a land of contradictions. We have been both slave owner and abolitionist, conscienceless industrious, industrialist and labor reformer, corporate polluter and world-class environmentalist. Sometimes we've embodied the most brutish attitudes and at other times, in Lincoln's words, the angels of our better nature. But no matter what any of us has chosen to manifest at any particular time, the American ideal as established by our founding documents remains the same, the expression of humanity at its most free and creative, and just. That thought, regardless of how corrupted it has been at various points in our history, remains our spiritual and political mission. The power of the ideal continues to shine like a beacon for all Americans, exhorting us to become what we originally committed to becoming. I have a childhood memory of one of my grandmother's church lady friends explaining to me that 
the sixth fruit of the Spirit was goodness. I was definitely too young to have a clue what she was talking about. I didn't even know to ask what the first five fruits were or if there were more than six fruits, let alone ask what is spirit. But she must have impressed me with its importance because I haven't forgotten this little aphorism that she taught me, and you may know it. Do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. I think that may have been penned by John Wesley, who lived the span of the 18th century and founded the Methodist Church, which, as we know, is having a truly soul-searing time of living up to its ideals of goodness right about now. So another disclaimer, another fatal flaw, and yet there remains this idea of the centrality of the value of goodness. Unless we are hiding out from the media every day, we are bombarded with the news, just feeling these incoming hits of not good. No one can say for sure where the term to hell in a handbasket originated, but these times feel this way, and I'm only vaguely comforted that throughout history other people have felt the way we feel now. My friends Peter and Ruth Fleck escaped the Nazi invasion of their native Holland. I am grateful beyond measure that before Ruth died, it occurred to me to ask her what we should be doing in the face of times that she agreed felt eerily, terrifyingly familiar to her. She didn't hesitate. She answered, just keep doing what you're doing. 18th century Irish statesman and philosopher Edmund Burke famously wrote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. So just what does it mean to set our moral compass to goodness? Do you remember the story of Dylan Siegel and Jonah Pornazarian? Pornazarian. They've been best friends since preschool. In 2013, when they were in first grade, Dylan's mom, Deborah, had to tell him that Jonah had GSD, a one in a million genetic liver disease. And she explained that there was no cure, that doctors were trying to save Jonah's life, but they needed money for their research. And Dylan said he wanted to help. And so at six years old, he wrote and illustrated a book called Chocolate Bar and dedicated it to Jonah. A week later, at a special event at school, Dylan sold copies of his freshly printed books and raised more than $5,000. A week after that, Dylan spoke at a PTA meeting and someone asked him how much money he wanted to raise. Dylan responded, a million dollars. The gasp in the room was audible. Deborah asked her six-year-old son, do you know how much a million dollars is? And he didn't hesitate. It's half a Bugatti. So a, ba a Bugatti, in case you're not sure, is one of the 10 most expensive cars in the world. 
Dylan was undeterred. Six years old, he says, we can cure this disease. By 2015, the book had sold more than 26,000 copies in more than 60 countries, raising more than a million dollars. And with that money, a team led by Dr. David Weinstein, Jonah's doctor, developed treatments for mice with Jonah's disease and then began planning human trials for gene therapy. I'm still in shock, says Dr. Weinstein. We are on the verge of curing this disease. That would not have been possible if a six-year-old boy had not stepped up. Dylan Siegel is now 12 years old. Jonah, porn Nazarian, is 13. And together they've raised one and a half million dollars. It's hard to overstate just how important this funding was in pushing the GSD research forward. Dr. Reinstein almost gave up on the work at several critical moments due to a lack of funding. All thanks to Dylan and Jonah, there's been tremendous progress. At this point, says Dr. Weinstein, we've treated six people with gene therapy and the response has been beyond anything we ever expected. New clinical trials are starting soon. If they're successful, the treatment could save Jonah's life. I'm really close to reaching my goal of being cured, he says. And Dylan is still thinking big. He's attending a summer camp here in Boston this summer for young innovators and entrepreneurs. He's also using his fundraising skills to help a young girl attend the camp. His dream, he says, is to continue to make a difference in the world. Be good. We could make it complicated or we could keep it simple. We know exactly what it means because we have been the recipients of others' goodness. Goodness is both being and doing, and it's a lodestar. We don't always get there, but we point ourselves in that direction. Duke University behavioral economist Dan Airely says in Judaism, if you save one person, you have saved the whole world. In that regard, what goodness means is to scale the problem down to the size where we can have an impact. If you think about global warming or poverty, you say to yourself, I can't, I can't solve it. But if you think about one ton of CO2 or one person in poverty, you can have an effect. Psychologist and author Harriet Lerner says, kindness is at the center of what it means to be good. It may require a very little from us or the opposite. It may require words and actions or restraint and silence. Everything that can be said can be said with kindness. Every tough position we have to take can be taken with kindness, no exceptions. Civil rights activist and founder of the moral movement, Reverend William J. Barber II says, I tend to look at what has lifted us when we found ourselves at our lowest, what has called us to a better place. How are we as a nation and as a people using life itself to create good for the poor and broken and captive and for those who are made to feel unaccepted? 
We must constantly raise that question as we live life, seeking to answer it not only individually, but together. We need to embrace those deepest moral values that call to us, first and foremost. Seek love, truth, justice, and concern for others. And author and former Dear Sugars podcast host, Cheryl Strade says, cultivate a sense of optimism. Remember to be grateful, be happy for others when good things happen to them. Goodness is action. It's being kind, honest, considerate, respectful, generous. It's holding love in our hearts. Maybe it's not a grand gesture. Maybe it's so small, only you will ever know it even happened. Yes, returning your grocery cart, saying hello, holding a door, saying thank you, listening. Cheryl Strade continues, it can be as simple as offering to let someone ahead of you in line, and as complicated as making years-long sacrifices of your freedom because someone you love needs your help. Over the course of a lifetime, most of us do both. I'm remembering a story that my friend, Buddhist teacher Sylvia Borstein tells. In 1986, halfway through a two-week mindfulness retreat on the coast of Hawaii's Big Island, Buddhist teacher Joseph Goldstein rang the bell to end the afternoon practice just 10 minutes after the session had begun. The retreat manager stopped in to say that she'd been notified by the Civil Defense Office that an earthquake off the coast of Japan had caused a tsunami. The wave was crossing the ocean and was projected to arrive in three hours. We have 70 people here, she said, and only one car. There are no available buses to send from Hilo. We can't leave. Civil defense is instructing us to organize supplies in case we get stranded and take high ground. They were staying in two-story bungalows on a beach ringed by thick jungle. The best they could do to take high ground was to go upstairs. So they collected matches, crackers, fruit, bedding, and flashlights and brought them to the second floor meditation hall. They filled the bathtubs with fresh water, and then there was really nothing else to do. They returned to their circle sat down before a wall-to-wall window looking out over the ocean to the flat horizon and waited for the wave. Joseph Goldstein told the ancient story of a Zen master who was asked, what would you do if the waters of the north and the south and the east and the west all rose around you? The Zen master responded, I would sit. Joseph said, let's sit. And so they sat in meditation. Sylvia writes, I closed my eyes and then opened them again, checking the horizon. I felt my heart pounding, imagining what a wall of water moving toward us would look like. I was terrified. 
I suppose out of habit, I began to follow my breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. It's very quiet. My hands are cold. I am trembling. I hear my mind saying, I don't want to drown. And also, take a breath. And now another one. Maybe the tidal wave will happen, I thought, and maybe it won't. I don't know. And realizing that I didn't know provided a moment of relief. I opened my eyes. It was windy outside, and I could see the, the palms swaying. I noticed a man out there watching the sea with binoculars, and I recall feeling touched by that, imagining him thinking that his checking close up could make a difference. My good friend James was seated next to me. I thought about James's wife, Jane, at home in Berkeley. She was pregnant. Suddenly, I wanted very much for all of us to survive. James's hands were folded in his lap, as were mine. I reached over and tapped his knee and held out my hand. And he reached for it. And we both closed our eyes and sat for a long while, holding hands. Sylvia Borstein concludes, the tidal wave never arrived. It passed south of Hawaii. It's more than 30 years now since that day, and I find that when I remember it or tell it as a story, the drama of it is not what I think about. What continues to inspire me is how my experience changed when I was able to shift my attention from personal fear to our communal lot. We were all threatened. We all wanted to live. We all had people who loved us. But I realized that I felt better when I thought about others' loved ones, too. Perhaps that's the clue about the happiness inherent in caring connections, the happiness in goodness, the frightened I is replaced by the we who do this difficult life together, looking after one another, holding hands. Beloved spiritual companions, may we set our moral compass to goodness, a lodestar. We could make it complicated or we could keep it simple. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Perhaps that's the clue about the happiness in goodness. The frightened I is replaced by the we who do this difficult life together, looking after one another. Let us be good and love one another well. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office 
at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.